are a guest here today, so am I. So it's good. We can get to hang out and have some of that fun together. But it's a, like Joshua said, we're going to be walking through Job today. Um, Not the fun parts of Job. Not the ending last chapter of Job. It's, uh, I was kind of just joking about watching the Iowa game yesterday, but I feel like being an Iowa fan, like for the last 25 years, has prepared me well to preach through the suffering and pain that the book of Job brings in life. Oftentimes heard, it's like not good to preach mad, but then it was God's design and God's idea to put Sunday after college football on Saturdays, so sometimes I just can't help it, you know? It's, it's those hard moments, those hard calls that you see in life, even the Anyways, I'm not even going to get into the Cooper DeGene touchdown. That should have been a touchdown. But anyways, even outside of Iowa football and the pain that that brings, there's been many of those hard phone call moments in my life. Maybe this is similar to you, and maybe you're walking through one of these moments right now. Uh, one thing I, just, I do want to like, take a quick aside, uh, be praying for Matt through this series. Um, there's nothing like specific he shared with me, but I just, I know as a pastor, like there's two, th- there's things that are not fun to preach through. Like oftentimes I joke, I really don't like preaching about marriage because it's like the two weeks leading up to those messages are like the hardest two weeks in my marriage anytime throughout the year. And even teaching, getting ready to like teach through like Job's suffering and pain. Like this has been like one of the hardest weeks that I've had in months. So as, as, your, as your pastor is getting ready to preach through this, the rest of this book, be praying for Matt regularly. Every single time you think about him, every single time he comes to mind, just stop and pray for him. That, that's my ask for you as a church. Love your pastor well. Well, you guys are in the middle of this, this series of learning how to deal with hard moments. So I've had some of those hard phone calls in my life, and not to go into to depth in all of them, but I was in college and a good family friend of ours. Um, she was probably one of the most on-fire people that I ever knew. She was... Uh, a couple years older than I was, um, just one of those, like, just that person, like, you knew, like, man, just her and Jesus are just, like, walking step and step together. I get that phone call that she was killed in a car accident right before going back to school for her senior year of college. Her younger brother and I were really good friends, and it just spun him out. Or that call of a former youth leader that I had where him and his brother were out near uh, a river, and there was a kayaker that got sucked into, like, one of those vortex moments. And so my, my, my youth leader's brother jumps in to try to save this guy, this kayaker, and his brother doesn't pop up out of the water. So he jumps in to try to save his brother, and he doesn't pop up. And all three of them died. It's like that call that I got a couple years ago from my, my wife's counselor telling me that the next six to ten years of our life were going to be hellish as we began to learn to deal with severe trauma that my wife had gone through as a child. Those moments, those phone calls that you're just, you're not really quite ready for. But a year ago, I had a call from a friend. Uh, I used to sell real estate names, and a good friend of mine is a lender, and he calls me up. His daughter had just been diagnosed with, brain, with a brain tumor, and they didn't know what to do, and there was several of those phone calls I got from him where things got from, from bad to worse to terrible. And then... A couple months ago, I had to to preach his 12-year-old daughter's funeral. Those moments where you begin to wonder, God, where are you at in this? How much more can I handle? I had a good friend of mine when I sold real estate. He was a good friend, a buyer's agent that turned into a good friend. His name was Sonny Wang, and he had posted this. I was going back through, just looking through some of his, his stuff on his Facebook profile, and he had he had posted this comment on March 12th of 2015. 
It's a, it's a quote from Matt Chandler. I didn't think to put it up on the screen, so I apologize, so bear with me. But Matt Chandler had said, I, I don't understand why certain things happen. Now, he was referring to a father of six who died in a plane crash. He said, I don't understand why certain things happen, and I can understand why the Apostle Paul would write perplexed but not crushed. However, I do know my wisdom spans 40 years, but God's wisdom spans eternity. I will just rest in the truth that he knows more than I do. It's a good word as we're getting into Job. It's a good word to live life by. Sonny was one of those guys that lived his life fully. You knew he loved Jesus. And 10 days after he posted that quote from Matt Chandler, he died in a house fire at the ripe old age of 25. When we were being in Kentucky, my wife and I had purchased a franchise, and so we were down in Kentucky getting, picking up the, the Kona ice truck. We used to run that, if you're familiar with that. That was, that was me for a little while. And I'm down in Kentucky getting ready to pick up this truck, and I, I miss a call from Cody Klein, who was one of the pastors at Cornerstone at the time, and I was like, oh, whatever, I'll call him back later. And then he calls back right away again, which you know that that's not a good sign. So I step out of the, the meeting that I'm in, and I, I take that call from Cody, and uh, that was a joke. You know, you get those calls, you get those moments, and you're like, this, this can't be real. Those calls that rock your life. Job is not an easy book to teach through, like I said, but it does a good job of orienting our hearts and our minds around the ideas that this book brings up. Because there's those hard calls, those hard moments that we deal with in our lives. That was just like a few. And I'm sure if, I, if we did like an open mic moment, each one of you could like bring up your own moments of those times where, like where you, were, you were walking down a path and all of a sudden you get that call that just rocks the crud out of your life. Those hard moments where it seems like things are going well and you just feel like the world just smacks you. So Job, this whole book sets up this problem of what's called the righteous sufferer. See, the, the common wisdom of the day, the belief was that if you were suffering, it was because of something that you did. So in Job's time frame, kind of go all through the Old Testament, all into the New Testament, and this, this common thinking was that same question. If you're suffering, it's because of something you did. Like, you must have brought this upon yourself. Even think with me to John chapter 9, as Jesus is walking around, his disciples see this blind guy, and like, their question to Jesus is, hey, Jesus, who sinned? This guy or his parents? And Jesus' answer was, well, neither. He was actually born blind so that my glory could be made apparent. But it's that, it's that thinking that, like, if there's suffering, somebody must have screwed up. Whether it was you, whether it was your family, whether it was somebody down the road, and you're just paying old debts, old dues, there's this feeling and this belief, and we still deal with this today. If something's going wrong, what did you do wrong? What did you do to bring this upon yourself? Maybe you have a story in your own life where somebody hurt you, and you shared that with somebody else, and they asked you, well, what did you do to bring that on? Were you dressed provocatively when that happened? In those moments when we try to put it back on the person, the righteous sufferer. Now, there are times that I have suffered because I've been a full-on idiot, I fully recognize we each have those times as well. But if you were here last week, Matt introduced this book, and he began to introduce the story of Job, where Job's suffering is not because of his sin. Rather, it's actually because of his righteousness. 
so that God can show that Satan cannot win. See, Job was written into that time frame when people were wondering what is happening, why is Job suffering through this, and they have to go through the entirety of the story with Job to see the ending, to see God's answers in that. And really, the question that the book of Job brings that oftentimes we struggle with is this common question that oftentimes you probably ask too of why do bad things happen to good people? I had the chance of teaching up at Twin Lakes summer camp this year and I had lunch with one of the cabins and that was one of the questions they asked me. Why do bad things happen to good people? So we wrestled with that and we talked about Job. So as we get into this understanding of who Job is, I want you to, to meet this guy, Job. And if you were here last week, Matt introduced him and described the character of Job. And he, he, he said, uh, this was great. I kind of stole this out of Matt's notes. He said, it's, think of Elon Musk's wealth meets Billy Graham's godliness. Like rich and high integrity, high character. That's Job in chapter one before Satan's unleashed on him. Now, Job at the beginning of chapter 2 is more like a man without two nickels to rub together, yet he still has the godliness of Billy Graham, and after shaving his head, he has the hairline of, I will just won't say it, think of just Mr. Wooly before you start putting the magnetic stuff on his head, just like that total bald shaven, probably not a very clean shave, it's probably a little messy with that. So at this point, when you get introduced to Job in chapter 2, what does Job have left? If you were here last week, you know he just lost his family. You just know he lost all of his wealth. He lost all of his servants. So what he's left with is the four servants that survived to come tell him that everything else was taken away. He was left with four servants, his health, and his wife. So let's look further into Job's story to see how that turns out. If you have your Bible... Open up to Job, 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 Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. One day the sons of God came again to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him. A man of perfect integrity, who fears God and turns away from evil. Now, if you paid attention to this or read through part of the chapter one, that is verbatim the exact same interchange that happens with the addition of the one word of when they came again. Again is the only word that's different between that and in chapter one when, when Satan comes to, to talk with God, and God again is like, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Now, what's ironic on this is this is after they just had the conversation. So in chapter one, you have this thing, Satan comes to God, and God is like, hey, Satan, have, have, have you considered my servant Job? And then he unleashes hell on him, literally in his life, stripping everything away that he has, and then Satan didn't, or Job did not curse God in that, because Satan's belief was that if I take everything from him, he will curse you to your face. But that's not what he did. What we saw at the end of that is Job 
shaves his head, he tears his cloth, he sits in ashes, and he cries out, Naked I came from my father's womb, or my mother's womb, naked will I return, blessed be the name of the Lord. And it even adds in throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Confession. I don't know how he did that. As I sat with my friend after his daughter passed away, we began to plan out the funeral. I shared the story of Job, and I also told him, I have to tell you, I don't, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how Job did that after losing everything that he just had, still sitting there and saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. So while we have this example in here, this is not easy. If you've walked through suffering, you know this is not easy. But there is one thing that I do want you to see in this. There's a, there's a movie. Um, I can't recommend it because there's a lot of swearing. Um, but it's a really good movie. It's, a, um, it's called The Usual Suspects. I'm not sure if anybody's ever seen that movie or not. My brother and I watched that years ago. It was one of those things, like I was in high school, he was in college. He was home for a weekend or Christmas break, something. And it was like we were bored, so we started watching this movie. We had heard it was good. We're about three-fourths through the movie, halfway through, and we're like, this is like boring. This isn't going anywhere. But we were too lazy to reach for the remote, so we didn't turn it off. And then you like you get to that moment in the movie where all of a sudden, like, there's this like the twist where all of a sudden it's like the reveal, where all of a sudden it's like, wait. What just happened in that? And like all of a sudden you realize this is the coolest movie I've ever seen in my life. But the, this main character he's talking about, he said, the, 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 I didn't write this down because I didn't think of this one, um, but he says something to the effect of the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist. I'm going to say it one more time in case you missed that. The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist. So maybe you grew up in a church tradition thinking that Satan wasn't real, that, that, that evil is just a product of us or a product of the world, but what Job is telling us and showing us, and twice, when Satan comes before the Lord, the Lord asks him, where have you been? Oh, you know, just roaming around on the earth and walking on it. Not hovering over, not like spiritually in it. He, Satan's like walking on the earth. So what do we, what do, we do with that? What do we do with that when there's this like, clear good versus evil? There's this clear God is good, Satan is evil, dark nastiness comes from him. We live in a spiritual world where there are spiritual attacks that we will walk in. Sometimes our foolishness, things that we walk into are things of our own design, but there's also reality where the enemy above anything else, hates you because you were made in the image of the one that he hates. And he wants to destroy you because of that image that you bear. And if you're married, he wants to tear apart your marriage because your marriage is intended to reflect how God loves the church. So Satan's desire is to tear apart everything that God called good. So there's times in our life when we walk through this very real spiritual warfare because we have an enemy that hates God and therefore hates you. In this exchange, after they have this exact same verbatim repeat conversation, there's one addition that God throws in at the end of chapter th verse 3. It says, Job still retains his integrity even though you incited me against him to destroy him for no good reason. 
That's interesting, this word retains here is, is deeper than just kind of holding on to. It actually indicates a strengthening of that grip that he already had. Job already had a strong connection to God. The suffering did not create it. In the midst of the suffering, Job clung harder and strengthened that, that grip onto the thing that he knew was the only thing that was going to bring him hope. The only thing that could bring life to him, he knew, is what he had to hold on to in the midst of everything falling away. Here we see Satan's response in verse 4. He said, skin for skin, which, you know, Satan in, in Genesis is described as the serpent. So you can almost like just get that like tongue, like in that like skin for skin. Like just feel like just that like, that like nasty little serpent sitting there before God. Skin for skin, Satan answered the Lord. Man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan's pretty proud of himself here. He thinks he's figured it out. Some irony, though, because Satan doesn't have very clever schemes. He doesn't do things very different. It's like watching Iowa football. It's the exact same play, just a different direction. <laughs> Playbook's one page long. So I wonder here if God didn't giggle a little bit knowing his plans for humanity. Satan's belief is that a man would give up everything he owns in exchange for his life. And later down the road, Satan made that exact same bet. Except in the latter case, the man willingly gave up his life in exchange for all of humanity's freedom. Satan doesn't come up with new schemes. He doesn't have new plans. It's the exact same plans, the exact same playbook as I've walked through ministry with people, as I've heard struggles, as I've walked through just the pain and the difficulty, it's the exact same playbook. With the difference of we all think we're the only ones struggling with this. So if there's one story that we can see as you go through the book of Job, one th call to action that I would call you into is when you're struggling, share it because you're not the only one. You see, oftentimes the enemy wants to make us think, man, I, my, in my marriage, I'm the only one that's struggling in my marriage. I can't tell anybody because if I tell people I'm struggling in my marriage, people in the church are going to look at me different. Or if you're a parent, it's like, oh man, I got that kid that like, if we're just, that, that kid, like it's, I, I got parenting problems, but I can't tell anybody because if I tell somebody, they're going to look at me different. I have a secret for you. If you're married, you have marriage problems. Because if you have a car, you have car problems. If you are a parent, you have parenting problems. God was the perfect parent, and look at how screwed up his kids are. Why do we think that we're going to get it right? So share those things. Walk in life with one another. That's what this, this is not supposed to be a place where we all come together acting like we have it good. This is supposed to be the place, the one place that all of us can come in, walk into and say, look, I'm like at the end of my rope. I'm done. Like I can't handle all the stuff that God keeps throwing on me. I need somebody to come and pick me up when I feel like I don't have strength to stand. Like this should be the place you get to do that. And if it's not, be the one that people can come to. And make this that. Anyways, back to the actual notes. 
get back to Satan's request, stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And again, rather astonishingly, God says, all right, go for it. I don't claim to understand why. As a pastor, like, we don't get like, an extra book like, with the explanation of like, hey, here's the book that we give normal people, but as a pastor, we're going to give you the extra special Bible where we, God explains these things. Like, we don't have that. So I don't, I, don't, I don't understand why God says, sure, like have at it again. But he still keeps Satan on a leash. The only command that Satan is given is to spare Job's life, which is probably, ironically, the one thing at this point that Job actually would have willingly given up. I don't think Job was suicidal, but I think there's that moment where he's kind of like, I'd be okay being done. So the one thing Job actually maybe was willing to let go of is the one thing that God's like, don't touch that. There's a limit to Satan's power. And while we still live in a fallen and sin-cursed world, Satan does not have full range and authority over your life. So when you're in the storms, when you're in the struggles, remember that. One of the commentators that I was reading this week, he said, the suffering of the innocent is a mystery that defies all human logic. The book of Job deals with this subject profoundly, but does not attempt to give a neat logical solution. There's not easy answers in this book. So then Job gets into the phone calls in a manner of speaking. Last week you saw that of the four different servants coming and kind of bringing those phone calls, those hard moments. And in this way, he gets two more similar style phone calls. So it's not like it's not the same, but we'll just call it phone calls for lack of a better thing. All said in verse seven and eight, you see what Satan's design is in this one. So Satan left the Lord's presence and inflicted Job with terrible boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. So he's still sitting in the ashes that we left him in at the end of chapter 1. And boils, if you're not familiar with them, I have a picture of... No, I'm just kidding. I did not do pictures. (laughs) I wanted to keep this family friendly. Those things are like... I looked up pictures just to like understand this, to like learn a little bit more. Like, uh, it's... I, I, I don't get that. So to, to describe it, not, no pictures needed, a boil is a painful, pus-filled bump that forms under your skin when bacteria infect and inflame one or more of your hair follicles. The bumps quickly fill with pus, growing larger and more painful until they rupture and drain. These things can grow up to as large as two inches. Oftentimes, if somebody has one, one is painful. For Job to be covered from his feet to the top of his head in boils is awful. Like, I, I can't imagine what that would be like. And oftentimes when they're clustered together, they cause a deeper and more severe infection, and oftentimes likely it would leave a scar. Meaning, even after these cleared up, even after you get to the end of Job, Job probably walked around with scars on his body from these boils that he had when, when God gave Satan rain to touch anything but his life. That constant reminder for the rest of his life, that walking with a limp, so to speak, where every single time he saw his reflection in water, he would see those scars on his life. And oftentimes, you're typically feeling really unwell and experiencing fever and chills, let alone, again, your entire body being covered. Now, medically speaking, you're supposed to wait for these boils to rupture on their own, so Job's choice of scraping them with some broken pottery is definitely not WebMD-approved. 
So you get this, like, this moment where he's like, he just can't handle it, the pain and the agony. And so he takes this broken pottery that's in the ashes with him, and he's just trying to scrape his skin off because the pain is so extreme. And he just wants to, like, he wants to rid himself of the pain and the difficulty. And haven't you been there too? In the midst of the ashes in your own life and the pain and the difficulty, wondering, how can I go on? So of the three things that Job had left, there goes Job's health. Well, let's see how his wife fares. Verse 9. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Well, that doesn't look good. Now, it's easy to paint Job's wife as the enemy in this story. You can really easily kind of throw her underneath the bus, but it's actually really important to recognize that she was going through the same agony that Job was. I see those, those kids that Job's mourning. She's mourning those kids as well. All of the, the wealth and all of the, the things that they had that disappeared in an instant affected her as well. Her security had been removed, and her fear is kicking in mega. Not trusting God is beginning to set in for her, maybe even some anger towards God. And I almost wonder if there's just this moment where she's looking at him, thinking, we just went through the same junk. Why are you not angry? Why are you not upset? But it's still pretty hard to brush past the harshness of the comment. One, another commentator I was reading, he said, Satan did not destroy Job's wife with the rest of the family so that she could become a tool in his hand. Oh, think about that one. Satan seeks to use Job's own wife to destroy him, the one person that should always be there, the one person that should be by his side, sitting in the ashes with him, is another tool in the hands of the enemy trying to get him to curse God and die. It's a brief marriage 101 moment for the ladies out there. There's a, there's a few women of the Bible that will often encourage you to be like, like Ruth, the Proverbs 31 woman, Deborah. There's like a bunch of different like women of the Bible that like if you go to a women's conference, they're going to typically use. You're not going to typically see things like Jezebel or Delilah or like the woman in Proverbs that's tearing down her own house with her hands or Job's wife. So mourning is very real. Pain is very real. So as a husband and as a wife, it is important that when one of you is mourning, mourn with them. Especially in this moment, I'm not sure if anybody in here has, has experienced the death of a child, but more than anything else, what I understand is that can drive a wedge between a couple. But this chapter is not really about marriage. It's about trusting God in the midst of the worst storms in your life, so let's get back to that. Later in the next chapter, Job gets really close to taking her advice. He doesn't necessarily curse God, but when he does, he finally curses the day that he was conceived. He goes on to wish that he had been stillborn. He says that the very things he has feared his entire life have happened, and now there is no rest for him. So he doesn't curse God, but he curses a lot of what God's doing. He curses his own life, the fact that he's alive. He would rather be dead than experiencing what he's experiencing. Yet at this moment, his response to his wife in verse 10 said, You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. 
Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Again, throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, he's calling his wife foolish, which I don't recommend, gentlemen. But he's, he's not using it as like intellectual foolishness, like you stupid woman. Like he's not using it in that sense. He's using it more in the sense of Psalm 14.1, where in Psalm 14 it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So in a way, she's, she's angry at God. She's in her own heart, and her own mind. She's cursing God, trying to get him to go along with the same thing. And so it's not this intellectual foolishness, but it's this foolishness in here that says, you're believing in God? How can you still do that after all of this? After everything you just experienced? You just lost everything, and on top of it, now your own health is, is in the gutter. How do you still trust? How do you still believe? That's the foolishness that he's dealing with. So this isn't just about the sores of his body or his wife being angry at him for not being angry. Job is still lamenting the loss of his kids as he sits in the ashes. He's still grief-stricken and now in so much physical pain that he probably is having a hard time even moving. And as this book continues, you will see a pattern of speeches that come out. Job will start, will start with his complaint, and then his friends that show up will begin to, to give some idiotic advice that is not helpful at all, and eventually God will speak with Job, and Job's fortune will be restored. Yet, what we see as we look back on Job and what is commended of Job in the book of James is not his wealth. James 5.11, I think Matt shared this last week too, but James 5.11 says, See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. <laughs> Job's endurance is what's being commended. But what did he endure? Like, what is the endurance? Like, he didn't die. Like, that's, that's the endurance. He didn't die. And in his not dying, he didn't condemn God. And sometimes when you're going through the middle of a storm, maybe that's just enough. You didn't die. You didn't give up. You didn't condemn God in the midst of it. And in the midst of the worst storm of his life, Job is trusting God in the midst of this. Sure, he is wrongfully boasting in his own righteousness as the book goes on. But when you later get into Job chapter 19, you get this, this really beautiful picture of where Job is putting his hope, where he is putting everything that he has. In Job 19, it says, I know that my Redeemer lives. If he can't say that in the midst of the storm. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on the dust, even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him, not as a stranger, and my heart longs within me. Job is still longing for the presence of God, knowing that he has not been abandoned in the middle of the storm. And after God speaks later, Job fully knew his position and humbled himself before the Lord. He recognized that if God is attentive enough to watch a deer in labor, that God is attentive enough to watch Job in distress. That if God is diligent enough to set free the wild donkey, that God is diligent enough to set Job free from his own suffering as well. 
that God commands the morning and assigns the dawn to its place, that God also commands the destiny of mankind and assigns the days that we will live. So let's go back to that question that we started with. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's a question that we all have to wrestle with. And if you've not been asked that question by somebody who is far from God, you likely will be. So as we wrestle with that question, the best answer that I've heard was from a guy named R.C. Sproul Jr. He said, that only happened once, and he volunteered. Let that sink in for a minute. We call ourselves good when there is nothing good in us apart from Christ. We call ourselves worthy when we have walked away and abandoned God with everything of who we are. Jesus is the only truly good person. More than Job's complete integrity we see in verse, in chapter, Job 1, 1. Jesus had perfect integrity. See what Peter tells us in the New Testament. He said, he, Jesus, did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. In 1 John, we're told, you know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins and there is no sin in him. He said Jesus was perfect, and as a result of that, in 2 Corinthians, we see Paul also telling us he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So let me share a few statements with you. Because Jesus was strong for me, I am free to be weak. Because Jesus won for me, I'm free to lose. Because Jesus was someone, I'm free to be no one. Because Jesus was extraordinary, I am free to be ordinary. Because Jesus succeeded for me, I am free to fail. And because Jesus willingly took on that punishment, we can trust, just like Job did, that God is with us in the storms. See, the promise that Jesus left his disciples with that we can rest on as well in the middle of the Great Commission is he's telling them to, to, to go and to, to, make, to make and baptize and teach and all the different things. He gives this one little promise in there. He says, remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. How do we see that lived out within the Gospels? within the disciples, the people that were closest to Jesus. See, we're, we're very far removed. We have to, or this thing called faith, we have to trust in what we can't see. But how did the disciples who walked with Jesus exercise this? Well, the disciples at sea, with Jesus sleeping, in the middle of this storm, they cry out, Jesus, save us, we're going to die. And he wakes up and he calms the storm with a word. They're in another storm later, and they see Jesus walking out on the water to them. Peter cries out, if it's really you, tell me to come walk with you. And so Peter starts to walk on the water, and you're probably familiar with the story. Peter begins to get distracted by the storm around him, the wind and the waves, and Peter begins to sink. Now, we oftentimes think like, oh man, he didn't have enough faith, but Jesus wasn't sinking in the midst of the storm. Even John the Baptist, the one that said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world later ends up in prison, sends his disciples to ask Jesus, hey, buddy, um, not sure if you knew my current address, but if you've been trying to find me, I'm, I'm in prison and I don't, it's not looking good for me. Um, I told people you're the Messiah, but are you, are you going to save me? 
Where, do, are, are you the one? Are we supposed to be looking for somebody else? So John, who knew, who knew who Jesus was, in the midst of his storm, still asked that question, Jesus, where are you? So what can we learn from the life of Job? This is not a health and wealth story of sticking through it so that God can multiply your possessions. Rather, what we can learn is that in the midst of the worst storms of your life, Jesus is sitting with you. Solomon Rexius said something along the lines at one point where he said, sometimes you feel buried, but it's really just God planting you for the next season. So if I can leave you with one thing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray constantly, and give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I don't know what storms people are facing here today. I don't know what trials they're in the middle of. God, I don't know who here is have, asking those questions of where you are. But God, I pray that in the midst of going through this story, going through this book of Job, Lord, can we see, not, let's, let's not look at Job for our hope, but Lord, let's look at you for our hope. Because Job put his hope in you. And God, can we put our hope and our plan in the fact that Satan will take swings at us, but you are with us in the middle of that. Just as he took the biggest swing he could at Jesus, and Jesus still rose up from that grave with freedom in his hand. God, can we trust in what you have done through that? Not in what we do, Lord, but can we trust in you? pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.